Hello and welcome to Cocoa Pods, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. This is where we talk about all the issues pertaining to maternal mortality and severe maternal morbidity. My name is Dr. Bola Sagadi and I'm your host. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Dr. Brad Boots-Taylor. He is a high-risk OB specialist and the founder of Sea Baby in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Boots-Taylor. Thank you, Dr. Zagadi. It's nice to be here with you. Thank, Thank you. you. Now, can you speak to some of the issues in pregnancy that can make a mom very sick or actually can lead to the demise of a pregnant mother? That's a challenging construct you just laid out for me, but I'll try to answer that by giving some background information. As a maternal fetal medicine specialist or perinatologist, which is also what we are known as, with our extra training, we deal with mothers who may have some complications that could compromise her health and or the baby's health. The blanket term that's used often out in the public is high risk, quote unquote. But the specialty of maternal fetal medicine tries to take those risk factors and give some some evaluation of that and then some understanding and then from that management recommendations. So that high risk label is easy to use and it directs people towards one thing, but the pieces of the high risk need to be teased out to ensure that there's maternal well-being and well-being of the baby. Having said that, in pregnancy, there are many disease states that can cause her to have a compromised health condition or to compromise her life and well-being and also compromise the baby. One of the ones that is pretty prevalent these days is elevated blood pressures. It can be a subtle disease. It can be one where the mother actually feels fine. But when you actually get a data point, like measuring her blood pressure, you come to understand that her blood pressures are pretty high. And high being over greater than 140, over 80, something like that. With that being said, if those blood pressures aren't evaluated and are treated, then you could have complications that can result in her death or the baby's death. So that's where the mortality comes in. And with that said, the evaluation, at least from an obstetrician or perinatologist perspective, is to see, in most cases, what do you do with blood pressure elevations, especially if you're at the end of the pregnancy. And so to answer your question, there are many things that can happen in pregnancy that could be compromising. But once you identify them, you need to evaluate them and come up with some management recommendations. But the important part of that, and I can't emphasize this enough, is that if the mother can share in that understanding of what her complications are, thereby she's more inclined to follow the recommendations. If a mother doesn't understand what those complications are and, and or has not had a conversation about it, like your blood pressure is high, these are the things that we should consider, these are the recommendations. If she doesn't share in that, she may not go along with that management recommendation. Sometimes the patient will go home, they'll may leave a hospital, more so out of a sense of frustration maybe. And then that's where you're going to have your morbidity, your mortalities, and your complications. So it's prudent to have a conversation and for the mother to understand what processes that are now being evaluated that can compromise her health. Now, you know, elevated blood pressure or hypertension is very common in women. How does it lead to morbidity or mortality in a pregnant woman? What are the symptoms? You know, I know that in my practice, you know, if a woman does not have her controlled blood pressure, it, it could lead to things like even a stroke. How does elevated blood pressure end up in a woman being very sick right. in pregnancy or actually dying in right. pregnancy? Well, that's a good setup piece because oftentimes there are no symptoms which makes it one where 
a mother may be evaluated and she's being told that her blood pressure is high, but she feels fine. But the symptoms that typically are prevalent are one swelling of the extremities. You can see that in maybe 50 to 60% of pregnant patients, generally speaking. But that swelling of the lower extremities, they call it edema, and or blood pressure elevations, like I described, greater than 140 over 80. And if there are symptoms, it could be visual symptoms where they're starting to see things uh, before their vision. They call this scotomata, these kind of sparkling uh, little lights. You can also get headache as well. So those things are symptoms that are a product of blood vessels in those organs, like the eyes and the brain squeezing tightly because the pressure is elevated. So you can have no symptoms or you can have symptoms. And once again, it is actually not acting on those symptoms where you lead to the mortality and morbidity. So once they're identified and if things are moved forward regarding management, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but once they are identified, the question now becomes between the provider and obstetrician typically and our midwife and the patient is what do we now do at this point? And it depends where they are in the pregnancy. There are going to be different responses to that. Typically, when people are at the end of their pregnancy and the blood pressure is elevated, the recommendation is to proceed to birth. If a mother is not inclined to do that, then things get kind of, kind of tricky. And even if you're in the hospital managing a patient, you can have complications from the blood pressure elevation and not acting on it soon enough. And I'm going to talk about the management in a minute. But the true thing to appreciate is that when things are identified, when things are discovered, then the management needs to be discussed and there needs to be some selection of what the choices are. And then some of the complications from an uncontrolled blood pressure in a pregnant woman can include having a stroke, having a heart attack. Right. Can you speak to some of those? Sure. Once again, it's a the cardiac system, the heart, the pulmonary system or the lungs are all fed by blood vessels. The brain is fed by blood vessels. So when those pressures are elevated, there's squeezing of those organ systems. Blood vessels could break open in the brain. And that's where the stroke comes in. In the heart, there can be blood vessels tightening. That's the ischemia, the chest pain you may hear about associated with the heart attack. So what happens is that the end organ, where all your blood vessels are, they are subjected to the elevated blood pressures. So the disease could be silent, symptom-free. It could be for a long period of time. But the elevation of the blood pressure, the constriction of blood flow, the leakage of blood into the brain, those are the endpoints of the complications of elevated blood pressure. That's where the morbidity, and if it persists enough or it's more acute, the mortality comes in. So yes, stroke is, is a risk. Yes, myocardial infarction or heart attack is a risk with elevated blood pressures, but it's untreated where those risks play themselves out. There is, as you know, as an obstetrician, there's a phenomenon called preeclampsia. The pre part is before eclampsia. And eclampsia or eclamptos is Greek for seizure. So before the seizure, if you make that, if you identify that process as in preeclampsia, to avoid eclampsia, which is the end organ damage from high blood pressure, stroke in the brain, cardiac issues. If you identify preeclampsia, how do we avoid eclampsia? How do we avoid loss of a baby? Because the baby is lost typically if the placenta separates it. And that's the end organ as well that under intense blood pressure, it could separate. It's called an abruption. So once you identify it, once again, the pre-before eclampsia, the elevated blood pressures, what is the management to minimize the complications and to have the mother have a safe, healthy pregnancy and birth process? And that's where, and I hate to be a broken record on this, that's where the information needs to be shared between the two people 
the mother and the, and the and the provider. And 99 out of 100 times when the information is shared like that, the patient will follow the provider's recommendations and preferences and she'll have a, a healthy birth process. Wow. So cardiovascular diseases, you know, they're like one of the top causes of maternal morbidity and mortality. And that also includes like cardiomyopathy, having weak heart muscles. Are there conditions of cardiomyopathy in which a woman has weak heart muscles that preclude pregnancy? There are some, I guess, some comorbidities. That's the buzzword these days, where what other complicating factors could put her at risk for something like cardiomyopathy? Mm. One of the primary ones is a poor diet. And so if you have a poor diet, poor nutritional intake, poor health systems, poor metabolism, you're going to be at risk for certain conditions. Oftentimes with poor diet, there is obesity. So the comorbidities that can increase your risk for having cardiomyopathy, weak heart muscles, is lifestyle. And those lifestyle problems are seen with one poor diet and uh, obesity. And we know that in this country, obesity is, is I guess, an epidemiologic phenomenon because many people are with obesity and poor diets. So they're putting themselves at risk for things like cardiomyopathy. And cardiomyopathy, if it's diagnosed before pregnancy, it's actually a contraindication to get pregnant because the death rate of the mother is up to 60 to 70%. So if you peel it back a little bit before one even becomes pregnant, we have a challenging paradigm in this country of lifestyle issues from poor diet, poor dietary choices, and then the comorbidity of obesity. And there's a classification called the New York Heart Association classification in which a laywoman can know how her heart is conditioned. Right. Is that something you want to speak to? I know there's a class one to four. Yeah. I mean, the, the classification systems, like any numbering system, is, gives one an, a kind of easy reference to where they are. If you're on, like you said, one through four, if you're on a classification of one, then you're not really in a position where there's going to be an increased number of complications. Four is kind of like that end point where your, your, your cardiac muscles may not be working well. You may have some underlying lung f- function issues, like with severe asthma. We used to, back when I was a resident, we used to have patients who had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, from smokers. And we don't see too many people smoking now. But so the classifications were at least to guide one as to what the potential complications would be with that pregnancy. So one through four is used, but the sicker you are, the more complications you're going to be at risk for. Just to take a side note to talk about COVID, if you will, the comorbidities that make COVID potentially deadly are the same things. Is there heart disease? Is there obesity? Is there some underlying pre-existing condition? So New York State classifications is great to tell a mother, if you're in a class four, maybe I shouldn't consider pregnancy. But keeping in mind that about 70 to 80% of pregnancies are unplanned. And if she's at a class, if she's at a New York classification one, then she's at a less risk of complications during the pregnancy. So it's a nice kind of grading system to kind of be appreciative of, whether you know anything about heart disease or pregnancy or anything. So in summary, just from what you're saying, from some of the common issues leading to a poor outcome for the mom in pregnancy, make sure you have a good nutrition, even in low risk settings. Make sure you are eating healthy, you are exercising as much as you can and present early to your physician with symptoms. Correct, correct. Correct. Lifestyle is what that is in a nutshell. Can you speak to any other high-risk conditions for the mom that you have managed as a perinatologist in pregnant women? Sure. I'll give a laundry list and then I'll maybe give a few anecdotes regarding those conditions. We'll see mothers with something called Sjogren's syndrome, 
which is an autoimmune disease in which uh, her antibodies are, are attacking her blood vessels, if you will, and it, it can cause miscarriages and it can cause also high blood pressure. I've managed mothers who've had type 1 diabetes. For your audience, the, the, more, the more commonly understood diabetes in adults is something called type 2, where they're, they're older and they become diabetics. There's a type 1 diabetic condition where they're diagnosed as adolescents, typically, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. Those diabetics are extremely fragile, are brittle in their control of their glucose, and they usually have other complicating factors because their organ systems have been exposed to the diabetic condition for decades even. You see renal disease, lung disease, cardiac disease. So those mothers with type 1 diabetes are moms I've managed. Mothers with seizure disorder who may have had seizures since childhood or even from a, a recent head injury from like an automobile accident or a, a slip and fall. So mothers with seizure disorders are, are also high-risk conditions that uh, as a perinatologist that I'm, I'm able to manage. There's another one that patients don't know about until they actually get pregnant and have a complication. It's called thrombophilia where they can lose a baby and or have several miscarriages and then through blood testing or evaluations, they realize they have an autoimmune disease, something like factor V laden or MTHR deficiency, where they're at risk for developing blood clots. And those blood clots can occur during pregnancy or outside of pregnancy. And if it occurs during pregnancy, in the first trimester, they can have a spontaneous miscarriage. Usually it's recurrent. If it occurs during the latter part of pregnancy, it can result in a stillbirth. They can also develop clots in their extremities or clots to their lungs. And sometimes even outside of pregnancy, a mother could be at risk for developing blood clots. And that's where you see sudden death for no known reason, someone who was, may have been healthy. So thrombophilia is that blanket term for that high-risk condition. And that can be diagnosed. And typically when we see it during pregnancy, mom has had a complication. We'll order some laboratory tests and we realize, ah, you have thrombophilia. That's why these complications occurred. So that's just four examples of, of high-risk conditions that, that I manage often. And for the thrombophilias, the blood clots can travel from the lower extremities to the lungs, and right. that can cut off oxygen supply and lead to sudden death. Correct. Just like amniotic fluid embolism, which is another cause of sudden death in pregnant women. Right, right. And amniotic fluid embolism, fortunately rare, but does occur usually at the time of delivery. And there's, there's a lot of theories as to why. But the overall sentiment is that the amniotic fluid enters into the blood supply of the mother. It extravasates through the uterine wall and the placenta and is sequestered into the vascular system. But the amniotic fluid enters into the mother's blood circulation and causes a cascade of clots to form and a total collapse of her cardiac and her pulmonary system. And like you referenced, it does cause, has a high risk for sudden death. It's and a, this is it's not preventable or, or can be easily diagnosed, can correct. it? Correct. It's yeah. about 90% too. So, and it's an event that occurs at that time. So one may wonder, hmm, if I'm pregnant, am I at risk for dying? The short answer is yes. <laughs> the long answer is there are a lot of things that could be done to mitigate that. And I think at the beginning of this conversation, we were talking about raising your hand, having your voice heard going for prenatal care, being intentional in your health awareness, making sure that your, your diet and your exercise. So some things are potentially unavoidable, but you can mitigate the risk. You can lower them significantly. You talk with so much passion about what you do. Can you speak to how you became <laughs> a perinatologist? What is, gotcha. how did you get here? Yeah, yeah. well, it's all about the journey. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll give you the short version I think I did my, my first birth or attended my first birth in 1987. 
And then with that, and that was the third year, as a third year medical student. And so with that, I was guided into that field of obstetrics. I did my residency training in New York City at a women's hospital in Manhattan. And it was a very clinical program, a lot of different types of births and, and things like that. But from that experience, I, I realized that there's some science to this as well. And I wanted to dive a little deeper into that. And that's why I did the fellowship in perinatology or maternal fetal medicine. I was fortunate or worked hard and I got a fellowship out at uh, University of California, San Francisco, also known as UCSF. And that is the, the home of uh, fetal surgery. And so all the fetal surgeries, things you may have seen on you know, the science documentaries, that started at UCSF. So I was fortunate to be part of that team that was helping with that development. And so I did my fellowship there. I actually did uh, two fellowships simultaneously. I did one in ultrasound and also maternal fetal medicine. I did a lot of large animal cardiovascular work with sheep out there, putting catheters in the cardiac systems of uh, fetal lambs, understanding what the dynamic was using nitroglycerin to try to treat preterm labor. So during that fellowship training, we were oftentimes doing things that weren't done before because they operate on a baby inside of a mother's womb required one, developing the techniques and working with the pediatric cardiologists, pediatric surgeons, radiologists, large team, but also having ethical discussions with the patient in which the surgery or the treatment wasn't even done before. And so those conversations were one to have a mother who wanted everything done for certain fetal conditions, such as congenital diaphragmatic hernia with the bowels in the fetal chest or the baby may have spina bifida, is having a conversation with a mother, breaking down that science and saying that we think these are the risk factors. We think this could be the potential outcome. It could be favorable. It may not be. But the ability to have that conversation was the foundation of my training there. And so it was in that where mothers were coming to you for for some sense of guidance and, and a hopeful treatment for their babies is where I realized how impactful perinatology and maternal fetal medicine could be. And so that's where my passion uh, flourished. Wow. wow. Thank you so much. Now, as a physician and a physician of a minority subset, we do encounter some barriers in taking care of our patients. Right. And this ultimately even affects, could affect the outcome of, of the patient care. Can you speak to, in the process of your training and practice, some of the barriers that you've had to overcome just being able to care for your patients? Right. Very good question. And one that touches on, I guess, a lot of things that can happen in a system that is designed almost to limit one's voice. I'll start by saying, as a perinatologist who trained at one of the world's prestigious academic centers, I have the ability to envision a particular management for a particular mother. And so if I am bringing to this management things that have a scientifically supported paradigm like the science supports these recommendations. And as a perinatologist, I can make them. Sometimes if you're around colleagues who can't understand that or who are more interested in jockeying for you know, positions of power, they may try to marginalize my voice because me being board certified in two disciplines and having the kind of background I have, I can make certain recommendations and offer the treatment for certain types of patients. So the system itself may say, well, your patients may be sicker, your patients may be this, but we don't want you to practice that way. And so if you're in a hospital setting, for instance, and there's certain protocols that are based on what the general population of doctors do, but they don't have the experience, 
And then if you come into that situation having the, the most knowledge, the most experience, there's a tendency for that system to try to oppress that, that experience. They try to marginalize it. And that translates into your patients not getting the care that they deserve. And so me as a provider who operates in that space, I have to juggle between what actually is healthy and best for the patient versus what does the department desire because the members of their department may have less skill sets, maybe maybe ignorant of certain management recommendations and or don't have the temperament to deal with it. So in medicine itself, you have the, I call it hardware and software. We as physicians have to go through a rigorous training program. We had to get in in the first place. We had to probably work twice as hard and be three times as better. That's why I mentioned I did two fellowships simultaneously. And then, so we bring to the conversation the software, we bring the brains, we bring the passion, and we bring the ability to be human. The hardware actually is the system, the hospital, the privileges, the boards, the people who actually, who control those levers of power. So you have a hardware software disconnect. People of color come into those systems and we're asking to be supported but the hardware of the medical system doesn't want to necessarily support you and they, and they can pull the levels of power to take that away from you. So in essence, until we also can manage hardware and software, as in having a birth center, where you can make sure that the healthcare is delivered, you can decide or, or make a determination of what's going to occur there. If we don't have that in a hospital, then me as a physician cannot provide the care that my patients may need because the hardware of the medical system wants to marginalize that. Well, that's such, um, even speaks to a paradox in which a lot of the minority patients are sicker. They have more comorbid conditions and they access the healthcare system at a later stage of their diseases. And they are also more likely to go to a race congruent provider. Right. And if the race congruent provider has been marginalized or judged by a harsher system compared with their peers. Right. And even the hardware, so to speak, has performed certain adverse actions on them, like right. removing their clinical privileges, you know, reporting them unnecessarily and making it difficult for them to practice their profession. The minority physician might end up ending their careers prematurely. Right. And this contributes in a vicious circle to the shortage of minority physicians providing care for minority patients that have more severe comorbidities. Can you speak to this system? Yeah, I mean, what you've described beautifully uh, is what I call the CAS system. And there was a recently written book that's on the New York Times bestseller list by Isabel Wilkerson titled Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent. It speaks to a system that is that its sole premise is to marginalize a certain group of people. And so if you take that construct and put it into the medical environment, you still have the people with the who control the levels of power deciding whether they want to have certain types of patients being cared for. And so if those patients who are high risk have more comorbidities, are being managed by minority physicians, the system of the medical system could say to themselves, well, we either like that and we'll support it, or if we don't like it, we're going to take away the provider out of that equation by either some gaslighting or some made up kind of accusations. We're going to take the provider out of that, knowing that the population that that provider serves, in this case, people of color, and then they're going to subject those people of color to more morbidities because there will be many physicians who won't want to take care of those patients. 
They won't want to take care of them for either economic reasons or they themselves don't want to take care of patients that may, may, may be more difficult to manage. So what you have is people of color being cared for by people of color. And then if they want to marginalize that entire group, they can attack the physician. And it's done, it's done repeatedly in this country. So it is a construct that I think we're working towards eradicating. I think in this era of both Me Too, Black Lives Matter, patients having cell phones in their hand where they can have information at their fingertips, and are a certain number of providers who are more inclined to kind of hear the other information to do the right thing. I think that's happening more and more, but it's an uphill battle. So the system is designed to marginalize certain types of patients and providers. Wow. Now, just you have written a book, and I want you to speak about your book <laughs> and um, just yeah. tell us, you know, what your book is about. And um, sure, we, sure. we want you to talk to that. Sure, be happy to. The book is, when one is, is titled Shared Decision Making, Bring Birth Back into the Hands of Mothers, and something that I released on Mother's Day last year, 2020. And it's basically a book to, as the title says, encourage mothers to have more of a say in the, the care that's being provided to them. And if they can be more part of that conversation, one, they can ask questions, they can be confident in the healthcare provider, and then they can, by extension, reduce their mortality and morbidity. Because oftentimes when mothers aren't engaging the medical system, they shy away from it, they're suspicious of it, they don't want to ask questions, they don't have any complaints then the morbidity, mortality takes over. That is a valid place for some of the minority mothers to be. Having suspicions of the right. system or not trusting the system or not even wanting to access the care. Right. That is valid. So how, how do we tie this all into just getting the help that we need? I'm glad you asked. And that's why there's a book about it. So <laughs> with, with, with that said, shared decision-making is a three-legged stool. The shared decision-making part is based on a, I call it, it's, it's called a three-talk model. It's written about in, in, in other disciplines like cardiology and, and palliative care and pediatrics where you, there's a shared decision-making model. And that's based on the ability to decide what choices there are to have a conversation about it. That conversation with the provider looks at the options that are available. And then from those options and that conversation comes a decision about which direction to go into. So shared decision-making is based on that construct, on that, on those three things. So from there, you have shared responsibility. So if a mother knows she's able to have conversations and talk about options, then she has to be responsible for her choices. So that's where the element of empowerment comes in. So if she can be responsible for her choices, the third part of this construct is guided discovery, meaning that as the information comes before them, the situation changes, like say her blood pressure goes up or she realizes that there's certain risk factors I need to mitigate or change, then I'm guided and I can pivot with that. If, if I need to have an induction of labor, an induction is started and should it be start or stop. So guided discovery guides you through this matrix without you having to know anything about pregnancy, science, birth, or anything. So when you talk about shared decision-making, the ability to discuss options, shared responsibility, the second leg of the stool is the ability to be part of that. I'm responsible for my choices. And then the third part is guided discovery. So when you have that together under this model of shared decision-making, then the mother's going to raise her hand and say, hey, Dr. X, I know it's Sunday night. My chest is hurting. I am reaching out and I expect a response. 
versus saying, let me wait till Monday morning because I don't want to bother anybody. And that's when you have a dead patient. So when you don't raise your hand, when you don't say, hey, let's pause and talk about this piece, then you have the morbidities that we tend to be hit the hardest with. Now, I want to say that, you know, we also are focusing on low resource and minority women. Right. And at times, you know, historically, they have been taught to some groups of women to be silent right. or not to bother the doctor or, you know, that's nothing. Right. And so that's number one. And then number two, they don't have confidence in accessing the system because right. they're thinking nothing is going to be done. Right. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why we have a high maternal mortality and morbidity amongst minority women, because they feel that maybe their lives are not valued. You hit the nail on the head. If my voice is not heard, why should I speak? And I think what has shown a lot of people in 2020 is that your voice matters. And we saw that with George Floyd, Black Lives Matter. You saw it before that with Me Too. You see that you can actually take a dictator out of the, the White House with your voice. And if you can change that, that mindset to where mothers could adopt that to their own health and specifically pregnancy, I have a voice. Now, how do I express it? And the way to express it is through sheer decision-making, but being confident enough to say, I can ask somebody who has a white coat on a question. I can call the hospital at midnight and say, I need to have this issue resolved. Not having the fear of doing that is going to empower that person, that mother, your voice is heard. You're not annoying somebody. You're actually calling the place that's supposed to be helping you. So gaining your confidence to do that is critical. So if we are distrustful of the medical system, we need to hold the medical system account. And it's when we don't hold it account, we are, we're putting ourselves at risk for the complications and mortality and all that. I'll say one thing to that. For industrialized nations in the United States, white women are at number 28 as far as safe pregnancies and delivery. 28 people of color were four times at risk for mortality and morbidity in this country. So it's a medical establishment, not necessarily listening to women. And then if you put people of color in there, they really don't, they really marginalize us. So the communication tool that this book actually hopes to fill and by the way, there's the audio book, I did that. It's on Kindle, just Google, Amazon, something like that. And I also did an online course, which I'll, I'll give a reference to at the end of this maybe. I did an online course about shared decision-making. It truly is to change the mindset of mothers, especially mothers from our community, to say, I have a voice. I don't know anything about medicine, but what I do know, I need to be respected and I need to have a balanced conversation about this process so that we can make choices together as a team. And when that starts to happen, then you start to see the change. Because in, when you look at history, whenever the people are oppressed, they're not going to be free unless they demand it. Waiting for the medical establishment to say, we want to reduce your mortality rate. We want to reduce your risk for dying. We want to reduce your police brutality. We want to reduce your risk for death. They won't do it. We have to demand it. And that's what the book is about. And that's what shared decision-making is about. Wow. So we know that there are gaps of disparity, that the kinships in the medical community are torn 
and that the infrastructure is frayed, especially in the South. And all these have left America for all its wealth and innovation, lagging in major indicators of quality of life, like maternal mortality, as you have spoken to. And I think one of the issues that can help women be heard is that if they have their own personal account of some of the ways that they have been mistreated. Right. And I know we speak to the fact that a cell phone, for instance, is a very powerful way to record events. Can you speak to how women can be empowered in that aspect? Sure. I have a, a theory, if you will. If you feel that you are being mistreated or mischaracterized or, or not necessarily getting what should be given to you because the, the situation warrants it, then to document that is helpful. And it's not uh, beyond someone to say, okay, let me document this encounter. We You, you see it on the news almost every night now of someone sh showing uh, the video. And so the video will match the audio, meaning that what you see will match your complaint. And then with that said, it has to be some unification at that level amongst everybody. So it can't be one person almost with a video and showing something and then next week is another video. You got to almost have this kind of organized effort so that when someone sees, and just to go back to obstetrics or maternity, when someone sees a person of color coming into the building to labor and delivery, they're not going to say, we can blow this person off. They almost need to say, this person is armed and equipped with information and the ability to change this relationship and the ability to question it. And thereby, me as the provider or the organization or the hospital, when I look at that mother coming in here, I am going to be more respectful of her versus let me just marginalize her. So to have this tool in your hand basically a studio with a digital library that's in the cloud, the ability to record something and start documenting it is, I think, phenomenal. The second part to that needs to be organization versus like, well, I went there and they blew me off and I'm going to record this. And Okay, it might get some play. But if there's hundreds of those, thousands of those, then that's when I think you're going to see a systemic change. And just to go back to shared decision-making, if you have, I think in this country, there's about 4 million births a year, a little bit over 4 million. If you have each one of those mothers saying, I demand respect from the medical establishment. I demand to be part of the conversation because they have a shared decision-making mindset. They're not in fear of the, the, the medical institution. People walk around with white lab coats on. I demanded the system will respond to that. Like we better be careful what we say to women. We shouldn't be using these trigger words. We should not be saying, oh, you're hysterical and you don't have pain. We need to be more mindful of it because there's 4 million of them who have this empowerment tool called a cell phone. And so with documentation and videoing, there needs to be organization. So let's talk up some more about, I'm going to go back to the clinical aspects sure, again, sure. You know, because this is very interesting. 
So, you know, we've talked about a lot of the major causes. We've talked about cardiovascular diseases, elevated blood pressures, preeclampsia. We've talked about abnormal blood clotting in pregnancy, seizure disorder. We've talked about type 1 diabetes in pregnancy. What else is out there that would actually get a pregnant woman and make her very sick or or die? Well, well, I'm going to turn that question around and and talk about the providers. Yes. Because when the providers quote unquote, get away with it, the pregnant woman gets sick and they die. So how do you hold the provider's account? This is also in the book, by the way. It's called the B-score. and B uh, for Boots Taylor? Either B for Boots Taylor or Bring Birth Back. So whichever one is more memorable will help. But the B-score is a series of nine questions, 10 points each. If you get all nine correct, it's 90%. You get a bonus question of 10 points, which is your own question for whatever's on your mind. But those nine questions speak to how is this relationship going to be with my doctor or my midwife? And they're, they're very easy, lowball questions. I have them here in front of me. Let me read a couple of them to you. And I marked it on this book. The first question is, does your provider take the time to actively listen to you? And by actively listening, that also means understanding, but not listening to reply, to cut down what you say, to slice and dice your argument. Are they actively listening to you? And to set this up, a mother should enter into their relationship with their doctor or midwife, understanding that they are grading them. You have to grade them because they're they're already looking at you as either ill-informed, the potential enemy, someone who's going to sue me, doesn't care about her health. They're already labeling you as that you should have the ability to say, no, let me grade your situation. So as we get into dicier areas, we can have a conversation. You can pause. I'm happy to raise my hand on a Sunday at midnight and talk to you. So the B-score sets that up. So nine questions. I read to you the first one. Question number four, does your provider discuss your concerns with you with respect and balance? You can sense respect and balance even if you don't even know the language, the body language, the attitude, the, the short answers. There's another one here. Does your provider encourage a patient-centered approach to labor support, like doulas and childbirth education? If you mention birth center, are they going to look at you like, oh my God, another birth center patient? Versus like, oh, you're, you're looking at another option. So these nine questions speak to whether there's going to be alignment. And so if you're at, say, 90%, anything can come up. You shouldn't have to have a, a PhD in birth to figure out what questions I should ask to see who's smarter. Anything could come up, but if you're at a 90% alignment with your team by a B-score, then you can have discussions about it. You can go through the choices and, the, and the, make the decisions and thereby less emotional trauma, if anything, and less complications because you're willing to have that conversation. If you're at like a 20 to 30% score, you know that there's going to be some friction. You know that when something comes up, oh, I expected you to act that way because look, we're at a 30% alignment. So if you do a B-score with your birth team, your doctor and midwife and even nurses, you're going to know where you are in that relationship. And thereby, despite the morbidities of the things you mentioned, the seizure disorder, the Sjogren's syndrome, the thrombophilia, is the provider good for you? If you're at 20%, you know when you raise your hand on Sunday night, you're not going to get that return call and you'll wake up dead. If you're at 90%, you don't mind calling somebody at two o'clock in the morning or two in the afternoon it's because you're in more alignment. And what we have is we have the medical system, which has all the knowledge and information. 
we have mothers who have Google and YouTube University. What we need now for that alignment to occur is for mothers to take this computer and be able to speak. And that's going to create the shared decision-making and thereby the morbidities. I don't care what disease you have, the medical system should want to take care of you now. And so that's what I think is necessary. And if mothers are coming in there, like I mentioned, 4 million births a year, if a doctor knew that every time they saw a patient, they couldn't just blow them off and dismiss them or project their own insecurities about them, be it, you know, whatever, they now have to view that patient as someone who's armed with information, who is demanding a respectful relationship. And I, the provider, need to be more on point with them. You know, I think the bottom line of what you are saying is a universal human language and behavior. Correct. From the provider, kindness, empathy, just Correct. You know, listening to the patients and understanding that this is a pregnant woman. She needs help. She has questions. And this is my profession. This is what I signed up to do. I will help her. I will listen to her. I will answer her questions Correct. And, and help. Because after all, as the providers, we signed up to, to helping women and Correct. we should be ready to do this. And with that mindset shift in the provider, the mortality goes down, the morbidity goes down. We keep talking about these these two sentinel events, mortality, morbidity, and it's rising, it's rising, it's rising. The disconnect is there. And then people from our community are less inclined to say, hold it, you need to respect me. You need to take care of me. So having one's voice heard, listened to and understood is critical. And so when we look at, you know, even in rural Georgia, in rural Georgia, you know, there's a lot of women, but like you said, that might not even have the education or the right. confidence. Right. And especially when there's a race discordance in provider-patient relationship, they might not have the comfort level to even speak to some of these things because historically they've been raised right. to not be comfortable around these situations. And here they are pregnant and needing help. I mean, what other resource or item of empowerment can we give a woman in this kind of situation? I'm going to give a one Sentence answer. Get their cell phone numbers. I couldn't contact my provider. I couldn't. They didn't answer. The, if you're with a birth team and they're not willing to give you their cell phone number, that says a lot. And then when you get their cell phone numbers and you say, I call them, they didn't respond or I text them. They said this. Now we have, again, documentation. And why won't a provider give you their cell phone number? I don't want people bothering me. all. The, well, why are they bothering you? They're not asking about the weather. <laughs> But you must agree that there is a potential for abuse in those kind of situations. I'll, I'll counter that by saying thousands of patients have my cell phone number. Thousands. I don't get these middle of the night. Once in a while I get one. I don't get this. They're not calling about the weather. They're not calling to see if there's a, a sale on ballpoint pens at Target. If they're calling you or texting you, you can say, oh, go to the answering service because I'm not on call. Okay, they went to the answering service. In my experience, and I do a lot of this kind of stuff with high-risk moms who have all these kind of issues, they don't abuse that. They respect that relationship. They respect the time that, let me not, let me not call them about vitamins and it's five o'clock on a Thursday afternoon. Let me figure that out myself, went to the internet. Okay, these vitamins I can take. Okay, when I see them on Monday. But on a Thursday afternoon at five o'clock, if I'm having a serious issue, I need to reach out to my doctor because I called Laban Delivery. They said, we're going to pass the message on. Never hear from them back. I called the clinic. Oh, the clinic's closed. Gotcha. Hmm, maybe I should call the ambulance. 
Okay, good. He has some choices. Or should I call my provider? I'm not going to call them. I'm going to call the ambulance. So they're able to triage stuff in their mind. In my experience, and I've been doing this a minute, I haven't had patients just call me just to say, I got your number. And so if you want to empower somebody, give them access. So what is the perception around, and we spoke to this, minority physicians and support relative to their other race counterparts? Can we speak to that? Clarify your question for me, though, just a little bit. Like in an institutional level, you know, at times we have a minority physician like yourself who right. is doubly board certified, a specialist in a, in a, with a, a, a sub-specialization of obstetrics and gynecology. And at times, do you feel like you have to prove your qualifications, your credentials or your experience as compared to your non-minority counterparts just to be more accepted in the medical community? The, I guess the short answer to that is maybe initially you have that mindset because of the system you've gone through, be it excuse me, high school, college, medical school, residency. But then at a certain point in your journey, you come to realize that the system is not going to necessarily accept the genius of yourself. And you have to be comfortable with your own genius, your own validity. And then you stop seeking that approval from the other physicians. So there is a tipping point. I mean, early on in your career, you, you're playing along to get along, which is fine. Why not? And then you realize that this, the hardware is constructed against you. And then you are in your own element and you're comfortable with your own self. And you see that with the figures throughout history. Not that I'm comparing myself to anybody, but you saw it in Martin and Malcolm and Marcus. You saw it in Barack, where you start to say, the system is out to undermine and devalue myself. I need to be comfortable with myself and not necessarily keep cajoling and catawing to the system. So there is an inflection point that I think people go through when you've been subjected to that enough. Jokingly, I tell people I'm not invited to Christmas parties <laughs> because of what I stand for, shared decision-making and obstetrics. Mm. You know, this thing that you said about physicians just being comfortable about themselves and their credentials is so important because we have a high rate of, you know, just even depression, right. self-depreciation, and um, even suicide in the physician community right. because of things that the system has told them or made them believe about themselves or done to them. So this is a very important statement that you made. I mean, would you agree with? Oh, my- sure. And, 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 and there's a new label uh, beyond burnout. It's called moral injury. So physicians, you know, because of a variety of things, and especially in physicians of color, there's moral injury going on. And the hardware of the system is designed to do that. I mean, 4% of doctors in this country are, are of color, 4%. And it was 4% in the 1900s and it's 4% now in 2021. Correct. The percentage hasn't changed much right. over time. Right. And that speaks to some other problems in the system. But it's important, like you said, beyond burnout, there's this moral injury. Can you expand on that? You know, because I do have an idea of what you're talking about. Yeah, well. Dovetailing into that is something called imposter syndrome. I mean, so you're in this place, you have your degrees, you have your training, and you're doubting yourself now because as much as I have done and and can contribute, I'm still less than in their eyes. Am I an imposter? Did I take all these exams and biochemistry and MCATs and all this else that da 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 da? 
Am I real? I'm not accepted. And then if you feel you are an imposter and your, your daily grind is, is wearing at you, that's where the moral injury comes from. And then the depression, the changing your direction, pivoting out of it. When you yourself need to say, I am worthy. I am good. I am going to verbalize. I have, I need some behavioral health support. I need some self-care. And the hardware of the system will, uh, will attack that and make you think that, well, maybe I am not good enough. But you know that you had to get an A on a test. Your classmate, who may not have been the same color of you, was given the answers to the test from the people in that construct, in that paradigm, that privilege. But you had to get a tutor for biochemistry and physics, <laughs> spend money on that. So you start to have that little deconstruction of yourself. All I'm saying is that we are all worthy and we need to realize that. And we have to create our support systems for us because the hardware of what we're dealing with on the daily is not necessarily appreciative of us. And as physicians, we have to, like you said, self-care, take care of ourselves, be in a good mental situation to be able to provide the best care for our patients. Right, right. So awareness, balance, correct. So Dr. Boots Taylor, for the maternal mortality and morbidity, to improve, especially in the state of Georgia. One of the things that I want you to speak to is the health of the minority physician taking care of the minority patient. And as we've talked about, the minority physician, they face a lot of issues in the system that can result in burnout, moral injury, depressive thoughts, at times, suicide. How can they make sure that they take care of themselves so that they can take care of their very sick patients that are, happen to be minority women? Right, right. Strong thoughts, strong uh, narration of the challenges that are faced by us. I'll try to answer it by saying it's understanding that the construct that they are in is designed to make them feel that way. And it's effective and it works. And so if you change your perception of this caring establishment to an uncaring one, and you happen to be a victim of that, then I think that's when you're going to open your eyes to the fact that there are certain levels of stress that are being put upon you. There are certain expectations of you that are not made of the, your colleagues and peers. And you are at a vulnerable state. And I think once you realize you are vulnerable, then you can get help. You can say, I am not Superman or Superwoman. I am having a challenging dynamic. I don't want to let my partner know that there are certain things going on. The ability to literally diagnose your vulnerability is going to allow you to get beyond it and get the help that you need so you don't get into this those four categories you described at the beginning of this, the depression, the, the suicidal thoughts, if not carrying it out and or moral injury and things like that. So you didn't mention addiction to substances, if you will, to help numb yourself to that reality. So I think that as a medical professional, you go through the gauntlet of training and you, you're left with, oh, I can handle this, but it's not necessarily true. And if you can identify that you are vulnerable to this situation, I think you're going to get the help you need. You're going to you're going to reach for it. I will say counter to, or not to counter that, 
But this generation of providers that are coming up now, doctors, they're not afraid to say, listen, I need to kind of like zone out from here. I know I've only been working two hours. So whereas an older construct was you only worked 120 hours, you got 60 more in you. I do applaud the the newer group of physicians and or people in general who are saying this treadmill is not working and you control the hardware of the treadmill. I am getting off of this treadmill. You keep the hardware. I'm going to keep the software and take care of myself. And so I, I think that in summary, the ability to say I am vulnerable and I need help is what's going to lessen that moral injury. In summary, some of the things we've talked about today, we talked about high-risk conditions that you have managed that affect women and that can actually lead to severe disease, severe illness or mortality. And even some of the ways to prevent some of these illnesses and some of the ways to mitigate preventable causes of maternal mortality. And we did speak to the fact that there are some rare instances that there are non-preventable causes like the issue of the sudden amniotic fluid embolism, which can barely be predicted or cannot be fully managed and can lead to mortality. We talked about that. And then we talked about the fact that minority physicians do face certain odds that make it a little bit more challenging for them to function as physicians in the system, and that can impact the way they take care of their patients. And we're also talking about the fact that physicians should feel free to seek self-care so that they can be in a better position to take care of their sick patients with a hope for a better outcome. And so was there anything else we were going to say to that? It's hard to go beyond what you stated. I mean, you encapsulated it quite well. I mean, seriously. I mean, you've encapsulated one of the challenges and the solutions to that. And I, and I think that when that provider, that physician, that nurse, which if you will, midwife, understands that they need to take care of themselves before they can probably take care of others is also a mindset shift. I mean, to use the analogy, you know, when you're flying an airplane, they say, give yourself the oxygen mask first before you help somebody else. Same thing. It's like, you know, I've been powering through this. I've been working through this. I've been dealing with bureaucracy and I've been dealing with maybe being undercompensated because of the potential the type of insurance someone has. And I'm doing all this. I need to get out from underneath this or get away from this and recalibrate. And so I think that physicians don't necessarily do that often, but I think understanding that you're vulnerable to it will probably make you do it often. So I think you encapsulated it quite well. I mean, there's nothing nothing I would add to that. And then the bottom line is, you know, as physicians, be empathetic to your patients, be kind to your patient, and as a patient, feel free to speak up at any time. Absolutely. Shared decision-making. Yes. That brings birth back in the case of maternity care and the power balance back into the hands of mothers. But I want to ask you a question, though, sure. if you don't mind. No, I don't. We're sitting in your very lovely uh, birth center, very large, uh, three birthing rooms, almost 5,000 square feet, beautiful space that allows some clear thinking from the mothers and I'm sure the staff. And you find yourself in middle Georgia also, you know, providing care. One, how are you doing and how did you come to this vision of creating a uh, sanctuary in the middle of this this environment we're in? And you're right. I try to create a situation of a sanctuary for mothers 
But, you know, I've been a physician myself for over three decades and I have learned a few things. And one of the things I learned is that a pregnant woman trying to have a baby should be at the center of the care. Right. She should be able to speak to what she's feeling and she should be able to speak to what she wants. And then the providers, just like in your shared decision-making book, the providers should be able to listen and then guide the woman to make the right decision and also shared responsibility. Right. And here we are, you know, fast forward. I saw the need and I created the space and thank God, here right. we are. We are right. providing the care to the women. It wasn't an easy journey, but here we are today, and we want to continue to do that. Well, I want to congratulate you on your journey and representing yourself quite well. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. So we have had Dr. Brad Boots-Taylor that came all the way from Atlanta to rural Forsyth, Georgia, to help <laughs> us understand some of the ways in which we can reduce preventable maternal morbidity and mortality. Thank you so much for coming to our program today. It was my pleasure. I want to put in one plug, though, (laughs) that I almost forgot. Uh, It's regarding the online course that I launched about three or four weeks ago to help people have digital access to sheer decision-making. There are 18 lessons in there. It nicely builds confidence and shows them the benefit of that. But it's at drbootstaylor.com. It's drdoctor, drbootstaylor.com. People go there, they can actually go to the course and they can get the information from that or they can uh, grab some of the material that I mentioned earlier by going to Amazon. Wow. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. No, my pleasure. Yeah. Good deal. Have a great day. Thank you.